Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Barry Lyndon. An Irish rogue wins the heart of a rich widow and assumes her dead husband's aristocratic position in 18th century England. Mm-hmm. You didn't think we were coming back to Kubrick, did you? Did you, everybody? Well, if you stay tuned to the very end of our last episode, I called for a divorce over this film. <laughs> we are still married for now. This isn't the most unwatchable Kubrick film. It has its moments. This is not the worst Kubrick film I've watched. I know, right? It's still not great. Stop patting yourself on the back. (laughs) And acting like this was not annoying as fuck. (sighs) Okay, the reason I saw this movie ever initially, because otherwise this movie would have never been on my radar. Fair. I saw pictures, stills of the movie, and read about the lighting sequences which the legend of the lighting sequences has outgrown what the actual circumstances were. Yeah. But I will say the way that they made this movie and the way that they filmed this movie was a giant technological achievement for the time. More importantly, though, it is one of the most beautiful films I had ever seen at point. And I think that still holds up. Meh. It is gorgeous. It's really not. I... 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 <laughs> I can name five other movies that I think are way more gorgeous from from earlier than this film. Every frame of this movie looks like a Regency painting. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Okay, well, there are other films that do this way better. (sighs) No. Nope. Nope. I I wholeheartedly disagree. Does it look good? Yes. Is the lighting good? Yes. It's good. It is. It's good. But it's not magical. It's not. If this was the first time you saw something like that, it probably felt magical. That's fine. I totally understand that. My experience watching it, this is not pretty. Like, no, there are other films that are not only better films, but are more beautiful that were filmed before this movie. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I don't know. Please go watch The Red Shoes. I just, there is something in the way that the visuals were captured for this movie that on the one hand makes it not a movie. I feel very much the same way about this as I do 2001. This belongs in an art gallery, not in a movie theater. Mm, No, it's not that good. It's really not. I'm sure there are stills that are that good or that close, especially when we talk about the candlelit scenes, because those are very pretty. And I do know about those, but it's just not that, it's not that great. It's just not. That being said, I don't hate the story. In fact, I kind of really want to read the source material because mm-hmm. it's a fun, roguish, rakish story. Okay. Again, Stanley Kubrick is not the right guy to make this movie. N- not even a little bit. And I think this story shouldn't be a movie well (laughs) it it could be but consider okay based on what's in the film if i'm assuming that everything in the film is also in the book because i don't know yeah then this should be a mini series oh absolutely because it would make a great mini series it doesn't need to be that long a mini series like a four-part mini series four part but again we shall invoke the Kubrick rule he is attempting to tell this story solely through visuals with a story that is incredibly plot-heavy. It's a very plot-heavy film. 
all told in visuals and glances, and it's boring as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it get you have tiny heightened moments that feel like they come out of nowhere. Like the sun is the only like the stepson, Bullington, who they call Bully, is the only one who has any motivation that you actually understand where his rage actually comes from. It comes out of nowhere, but I also get it. He's fucking pissed. And he's terrified all at the same time. He looks at this guy and he can just see, he's like, I got your number, dude. You're an opportunist. You're just coming for my mom's money. That's all you want. You treat me like dog shit. Oh, y'all have a kid? That kid is king of the mountain. I'm dog shit. But oh, here's the thing. I'm the one who gets all the money and you continue to treat me like shit. So fuck you. And then it just keeps going on and on and on. But yet he's still terrified of him. Yeah. Apropos of nothing, I think about the fact, watching this, Mm -hmm. that it's not so much that I enjoy this movie. Mm -hmm. It's that the visuals unlock a lot of cues for filmmakers I really, really, really like. Okay, that's fair. I I think that's where my admiration comes, where it starts to unlock really Paul Thomas Anderson, the biggest one, who is very much cued off of the visuals used in Kubrick films, and especially this one. Sure. You look at something like the Phantom Thread and you sure. see such similar composition. Sure. But, but but he's got a story and dialogue to back it all up and the visuals just heighten all of it. Yeah. You have a story to go back to. Paul Thomas Anderson is an actual auteur. Stanley is considered an auteur. He's not. We've broken him down over time. He is an auteur. He's not a good one. But he is one. No, he's a gimmick is what he is. Well, and this is the first of his considered true auteur movies. Here's the thing about Stanley, aside from our 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 Kubrick rule, is that he has a project. He says, this is going to be a painting movie. Then I'm going to have my space movie where I I do camera tricks. Then it's going to be my color movie. You know, it's all about the, the color stories that are happening in A Clockwork Orange and all that type of shit. That's what he does. He picks his gimmick for his project. He's a gimmick guy. Stanley Kubrick is a gimmick. He's a gimmick. He is a walking MacGuffin. That's what it, he's a gimmick. He's a film MacGuffin. Yep. <sighs> Figured it out. Thank you. <laughs> well, the budget for this movie was $11 million. Mm, 75 money. That's actually not very much. That's a little... Mm, it's, uh, it's a lot for the movie they're making. Well, for this type of film, considering location, I'm I'm looking at locations and costumes because them costumes ain't cheap. Yeah, that's not out of line. Its global gross was two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> this was a major, major failure. Uh, yeah, it didn't even break. It didn't even come close to breaking even. Filming took three hundred days over the course of two years starting in mid-1973. Production had to be shut down twice on the film for various different reasons. Um, There are some very minor who-could-have-been-betters that pop up. We'll get to it in casting. There's a lot that went into the full making of this movie. But the failure of the movie, despite it being a technical achievement at the time, being recognized as such. And that, I mean, it was. they, They were doing camera work that had not been tested or done. So mm-hmm. it became a big thing within the film community. But the thing is, is that this is what he does. He does great work, technically, that inspires other people to make 
much better films. <laughs> Interesting. But this was what led him to choose The Shining as his next film, a really, truly commercial project. Okay. Makes sense, coming off of a failure like this to go into The Shining. That's not where you think Kubrick would go. Uh, you have to completely pivot and be like, I have to completely erase this from me. I know, it, makes, it actually makes total sense. Despite the fact that, I mean, I'm sure he was proud of the film he made. Just No, but just like, this sucked. I have to shake this completely off of myself. I'm mm-hmm. like this versus The Shining are completely different films, especially for a guy who has the standards he does. Totally. So like that makes that makes complete sense to me. There is a bit of a development legend, though it's not like bad or anything. After 2001, his next planned project was a film about Napoleon. Oh, yeah, we've talked about that. And they spent years researching the Mm -hmm. subject and the era. Mm -hmm. He had read reportedly several hundred books on Napoleon. It's like Spielberg's Lincoln. Yeah, but I mean, even deeper. Like, sure. We can say all the the terrible things we want. The man does do his research and did do his research. Kubrick was meticulous to a fault. Yeah. But during that pre-production, the film Waterloo began development. And that came out in 1970. Okay. And the studio, looking at that and citing budget issues, backed out of the project entirely. They said, we can't make this Napoleon. Okay. And Waterloo also failed, so they wind up saying no. So Kubrick moves on to A Clockwork Orange, obviously. Mm -hmm. But during the interim, he is still looking for a fictional story that would fit the period of all of this extensive research that had already been done. Not a dumb move. sense like okay like i did all this work i I want it to pay off (laughs) so he's looking around he looks through several different stories and rejects them and he finally settles on this and we land on our writing okay now obviously stanley wrote and directed and produced this movie he gives Mm. his big name at the end he finally gets to call himself the full auteur trio blah 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 vomit but For writing specifically, we're going to talk about William Makepeace Thackeray, who wrote the novel The Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, Esquire. Stanley actually used a serialized version of the novel, which was published beforehand. The biggest difference is that the serialization uses a narrator named George Savage Fitzboodle. Fitzboodle? Which everything in this movie, with somebody else besides Kubrick doing what he thinks is funny... This is a fucking uproarious comedy. Oh, so much of this film should have been played for comedy. Absurd comedy. Like, okay, just decided who should have directed this film. Who? Armando Iannucci. Well, okay, but I'm trying to think 70s directors. No, no, but this story in that guy's hands is perfect. Yeah. Well, and honestly, Jorgos Lanthimos. The easy line to draw here is the favorite. Fair, fair, true. Because the favorite took what this movie did and actually applied it. <laughs> it. It took the template of this film and applied and applied the style to that story. And got the performances that it needed. Performances of a lifetime, because damn, all those women are amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, Thackeray's most famous novel is Vanity Fair. Yes. Which everybody knows about. They've adapted it many, many times as miniseries. It's come up a few different times, and a fairly recent version came out. Stanley actually wanted to use that story. He wanted to use that novel. But it is such a long and deep novel with so much plot that he knew, I only have three hours. 
<laughs> I only took the average. But, I, I mean, here's the thing. He knows if I go any longer, they're not going to approve this movie. I mean, that's fair, but also it's just like, like you're complaining about three hours. Yeah. <laughs> you're complaining about only having three hours. It's just hilarious. Coming I mean, I don't think he's, I don't think he's complaining about three hours. I think he's just like, I can't do justice to that story in that amount of time. Mm. So I need to look for something a little more condensed. Also around that time, Vanity Fair did get a TV adaptation. So he avoided retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole story obviously is Lyndon's attempting to jump from the landed gentry to the English aristocracy. And he was based on an actual Irish rogue rake named Andrew Robinson Stoney. Stoney went on to marry Mary Eleanor Bowes, the Countess of Strathmore, who was eventually called the Unhappy Countess mm. because of Stoney's shenanigans, I'm mm. sure. Okay. And she is actually a predecessor to Queen Elizabeth II. Okay. So the biggest thing about this novel is that it is considered the first in the English language to center on an anti-hero. Okay, cool. So Barry Lyndon is the first English language anti-hero story, which reads, I mean, I don't want to give this movie too much credit, but it's not like Barry's ever presented to us in a flattering manner. He's kind of the worst. Yeah, you can't ever say, well, Barry's the best, or he's never painted sympathetically at all. <laughs> no. Like, he's a dick. I mean, there are a handful of scenes that really work. And that scene in the stagecoach, when she asks him to stop smoking and he blows it right in her face, is phenomenally dark. Again, different director would read much better. Because he, here's the thing. We've talked a lot about Stanley's ability to direct actors. Yeah. And sometimes he does get pretty good performances. He mm. got nothing in this movie. Well, we can, we'll talk about that later. Oh. Uh, well, let's talk about our writer-director now. Mm -hmm. It's Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. We did an extensive series on this man. We have a rule named after him. Yes, the Kubrick rule, <laughs> which states very clearly, if you need context in which to understand your film, your film is not good. To be fair, if you need nope. full story context. Nope. The eh. only exception to the rule is sequels. <laughs> sequels are an exception to that rule. What do we think about Stanley's directing in this movie? We were talking about writing? All of it. Uh, it all goes together. It's crap. <laughs> crap on a cracker. Crappy crap, 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 crap. You know, we talked about Lincoln being self-indulgent. God, this movie really is. Like, so it's just bad. It's just bad. It's almost like you didn't try. I, I wouldn't say that. It's all so incredibly composed. It's all so incredibly staged and put together. He He's very clearly trying. I, it doesn't... Uh, I just... It's just so stiff. It's he, so stiff. No, okay, here's the thing. He only cared about what it looked like. Yeah. He only cared about what things looked like, and he barely cared about what people looked like, because they all looked awful. And there is no performance. There are no performances from anybody. At all. It's like a Star Wars prequel. <laughs> like, it's just about how it looks. It truly is. I mean, it, it, it is literally just painting on canvas. And That's like, all he saw. In this it movie. looks nice, but who gives a fuck? Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. <laughs> like, who gives a fuck? This is a waste of three hours. It is. <laughs> he did not understand this story. He did not understand how to tell this story. He just decided, this is my gimmick. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And this is crap. It's crap. 
I can't defend him. I know. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm, so, I'm, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're over trying to defend it, and you're just like, I thought it was pretty, and this is why I like it. It's crap. Everything about this movie that I enjoy is directly related to somebody else's execution mm-hmm. of his vision. His vision itself does not work, and it really doesn't work now when mm-hmm. we've seen it done so much better. It's like you said, this is an absurd story. And that's what's interesting. And that's what's like we saw in in The Favorite. Like the moments that work in this movie are the ones where he accidentally stumbles on the absurdity. Yeah. The whole final duel works really fucking well, but it's only because he has stumbled upon the insanity of dueling with this sort of majestic scene creation. Well, no, actually, he blew it on that one. That scene doesn't work at all. I think it does. I don't think so, because he blew it on every single duel. Because the first duel, you're like, what? Y'all are actually dueling? This is ridiculous. So the first duel is okay. But then it's just like, you're going to duel again. You're going to duel again. You're going to fight again. Like, this, all this guy fucking does is duel. If you're going to do that, you need to do it all the fucking time. You need to do it more, or you need to make a bigger deal about how everyone's like, this is fucking stupid. Or he needs to make a bigger deal about how often he will duel. The thing that read to me was Bullington. Bullington is the only thing that makes that different. And that's where they missed the mark. Because they focused on Bullington. Little whiny pants. They should have focused on how, for the first time... Barry was going into this knowing he was not shooting at that guy. Yeah. Because that's his meal ticket. He can't. That's why no one would fuck with Barry. But Bully didn't know that because Bully's an idiot. But that's what they should have focused on about how this was different for Barry because that does change things. And they should have subverted that expectation. Like, oh, it's either it's going in and it's going to be just like it was. It's like, wait, what? All I mean is that there are there are moments where the visual tone is so grand. For me, the visual tone is so grandiose and the actual action is so minimal. And I'm not saying he did this on purpose, but it actually reads as absurd because we are grandly showing something really stupid. I mean, it just feels like anything good that showed up on screen is by accident. Exactly. That's really that's really where I come from. And I mean, it's it's just it's bad. (laughs) like i really wasn't this down on it until i started really thinking about it and now i'm just like fuck this movie yeah well now i'm like mad about it (laughs) (sighs) well he planned to film in ireland Mm -hmm. but wound up on an ira hit list because of the possibility of filming english soldiers in ireland yeah that sounds bad the troubles in the 70s were the real fucking deal, man. I don't I don't really know all about that, but I know it's not good. It's not it was great. Rough. It's not great. He wanted only location shots. Okay. He refused to try to use a soundstage. And there's a logic there of that's how every one of these period pieces is made, and I want to visually try and find a way to do it on the location. Okay. He's a dick. He's being a dick about it. But there's a, some kind of logic there of trying to give some authenticity and do something different. No, that's just give me my money. But he also wanted to shoot from driving distance to his London home. Yeah, that's what that is. It's, I, he's so lazy. He's No, it's to me that doesn't read as lazy. That To me that reads more agoraphobic. Mm. Or 
power move. No, I think it's... He wants the control. Well, there's control, but I think it's more I don't want to be far from what keeps me comfortable and feeling secure. So his scenic designer, a man we have talked about many times, Mm -hmm. both for him and for Bond, Ken Adam, had to search all throughout England and Ireland. He was like, there's no way. We have to widen everything out a bit. (laughs) They searched all over the place. They found several different locations, even outside of Shepperton. One of them is Powers Court House, an 18th century mansion in County Wicklow, Ireland. And the reason I bring that up as a point of trivia is it actually got destroyed in an accidental fire a few months after filming. Oh. So the movie is actually a historical record of the interiors of the house. Oh, that's kind of cool. The saloon is probably the biggest one. Mm. When we see him with Potsdorf in Berlin and they're having dinner, that was filmed in that house. Um, But they used it for multiple scenes to use as sort of a parlor in type five. The shots were specifically composed to resemble 18th century paintings, particularly those of Thomas Gainsborough. The only thing that would fascinate me about this movie is if you took stills from this movie and put them next to the paintings in a museum. That would kind of be a cool thing to look at to see how it was composed and how it was put together. Not saying it's good, just saying that would be interesting. Yeah, people... People do stuff like that. Mm. And to me, it shows. I get that I get that it's so boring for you that it doesn't read that way, but the composition to me really read through. Like I did get drawn in by it. That's fine. He often played the classical score during takes just to have everybody in a good mood and in character. Okay. Uh, he was inspired by a method Sergio Leone employed in Once Upon a Time in the West. Okay. I love the music from this movie. I really do. That's the one thing I really, really fell in love with when I watched it the first time. (laughs) Particularly Handel's Saraband, which fills in for the theme song of the movie. Hmm. Then we get to the lighting. Okay. So the legend has always been around this movie, and I was suckered into believing this too, was that there is no artificial lighting in the film. Mm -hmm. Now that is not true. There are definitely scenes where artificial lighting is used. For example, when Brian discovers he's getting a horse in that dining room sequence, that definitely had some artificial lights. However, it was kept to a minimum. And the biggest thing is that any candlelit scene you see in the movie was naturally lit. Okay. Which to especially the filmmakers and the cinematographers watching this movie was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. So the way he did this was he concocted a rig that used a 50 millimeter lens built by the Zeiss Corporation for NASA. <laughs> okay. This is before IMAX. Mm-hmm. It had an adapter for still cameras that was like 130 millimeters or something okay. that they rigged onto the movie camera. Oh, okay. And they jerry-rigged this all together and it became the largest aperture of a lens for any kind of film use. Okay. Because you would have to widen. Yeah, you'd- all the light you need to get. Hmm. Only 10 of these lenses were ever made by Zeiss, and Kubrick got three of them. Hmm. One was remained unmodified. The other two were converted to 35mm and 25mm focal lengths, though Kubrick never actually used the 25mm lens because it produced too much distortion in the picture. Okay. So there were some scenes where they could get a little bit wider, but not very much. Per Maria Berenson, who plays Lady Linden in this movie, the actors in these sequences could not move freely around the shot. They had to be very restricted on where they could move (laughs) because there was such a narrow focus on the camera. If they got too far out of range, they'd be completely out of focus. 
John Alcott, the cinematographer, needed incredibly limited movement and constant supervision on the lens focus. They had to watch it like a hawk anytime they did these scenes. That makes sense. Which also starts to tell you why it took 300 days to film. That makes sense. Not to mention, guess who wants to make 25 to 50 takes of every fucking scene? David Fincher. (laughs) Nope. Stanley Kubrick. Jesus. The candles were also made to be much brighter. They gave each candle three wicks Mm. and used a wax that was much more volatile so it would burn brighter. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So when you see any candle in the movie, they're incredibly short because they would melt so quickly. So just a a fun note if you're looking, you can catch that. Of course, like we said, Kubrick loved to take too many shots. There are rumor goes that the scene where Barry met Lady Linden on the balcony was shot over 100 times. And the rumor then says that O'Neill was so exasperated with each successive take that he finally stared Kubrick down in a rage and said, all right, I'll tell you what we'll do. You act out my part in the scene and then I'll imitate you. Kubrick, in his typical condescending way, just assumed he was being huffy and insolent and moved on. I hate that man. I hate him so much. I used to love that man's movies. Now, fuck Stanley Kubrick. Yep, pretty much. Just a haughty asshole. He's just a privileged asshole. <laughs> Jesus. O'Neill would later state, quote, Oh, it's all right, but he, meaning Kubrick, completely changed the picture during the year he spent editing it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that sounds right. <laughs> it sounds right. And you know what? That brings us to our cast. Okay. So, one note on the casting. It's hard to know exactly how many other famous UK actors were possibly involved in this production. Mm-hmm. We know Brian Blessed, who some people might know from Flash Gordon. He was a famous British character actor. Mm-hmm. He was definitely cut out. But okay. there's no way of knowing. Kubrick allegedly recast upwards of 50 different character actors in the making of this movie. Do we know why? No. Like he just wasn't happy with anybody? It's a total rumor. We have no idea whether it actually happened or not, but I think the production went on for so fucking long. So people just started getting swapped out. Yeah. But instead of talking about a UK actor first, let's talk about an American. Qua? Playing the leading role of Barry Lyndon is Ryan O'Neill, the father of Tatum O'Neill, the longtime partner of Farrah Fawcett. Before this, he did lots of television, then the film Love Story, which made him a household name, Mm -hmm. What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. After this, A Bridge Too Far, The Driver, Oliver's Story, The Main Event, Obsession, Partners, Irreconcilable Differences, Chances Are, Malibu's Most Wanted, Knight of Cups, and he had a little run on Bones for a while. Oh yeah, he did. What do we think of Ryan O'Neill in this movie? He's way overblown as an actor. It's hard to know if he's necessarily a bad actor or if this movie made him look really bad as an actor. I think there's something there. I... I don't know, but I'll tell you, this movie doesn't make me care to find out. I think he's more of a pretty face than a great actor, but I think there's definitely more than Stanley ever let him be in this fucking movie. I mean, Stanley didn't try. No! <laughs> he, he didn't try with with him at all. Um, I see moments where I go, I think he might be good, maybe, but I don't know. But, I mean... If there was a time where Ryan tried and it, it was never on film hmm. because I don't see a single frame where it looks like Ryan is trying. I don't see him try to flirt with ladies when he's around ladies. 
I don't see him being sincere with children, with that son that he's supposed to love so much. Hmm. I don't see him being a badass at all. So this movie makes me not think he has any ability. So if he tried, if there's a single frame of him trying or being competent at any one of those things that this character should have, didn't end up in this film. No. And there are God knows how many takes that were left on the cutting room floor. uh, Who knows? It is interesting that accidentally Stanley Kubrick's ridiculous way of working exposes actors to go, are they still good if you make them do it a hundred times? No one's good if you make them do something like this a hundred times. It's fair. But, you know, Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut, still kind of interesting to watch. Yeah. Because he's Tom Cruise. But here's the thing. Are we watching take one or take 100? Yeah. That's the thing. You know, there there are things that, hey, if you make me do this a hundred times, yeah, I'm going to be amazing at it. And there's this perverse thing where some directors think, well, if I make you do it enough times, I'm going to get something different out of you. I'm going to frustrate you so much you're going to surprise me. Or I'm going to get that magic moment. And that might be true. And there might be a scene that calls for that. Or if there's a scene that is off, that is that just is not working, like on the page it works great, or in rehearsal it was good, but we're here on the day and no- nothing's clicking. And so you're like, we just got to keep doing it. We got Something's off. We got to do something different. Okay, try it faster. Try it slower. Pretend you're an alien, whatever, because you're trying, like something's off, but today's the day we have to get it done and we're all here. So we're going to do it until we figure it out. That's not what Kubrick's doing. Exactly. He's just like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make you do it until you die, essentially. Yeah. That is abusive. He doesn't give a shit about the actor because what he's looking at is did this one light suddenly show up in the frame? Or did the glint of your eye look perfectly as you were wistful in the way that I want you to be wistful? That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And like, I know David Fincher also can do this a lot, but David Fincher is also a very meticulous writer. And so for him, from what I've seen of his work, it's it's a choreography for him. Did you hit the beats the way we needed to hit them? It doesn't it doesn't mean it can't also be that abusive way. Yeah. But it's very this has to be this plus this at this. It has to be exactly down. It cannot misfire. It's He's an abusive prick. It's an abusive he just is. Just again, this is my gimmick. Anyway. Yeah. I mm-hmm. it is it is hard to just slam Ryan O'Neal when we don't know what he had to go through for this shit. I, I, I'm uh, true. But if we go by what we see, it's not good. I, this performance is crap. Yeah. And I can't defend him as an actor because I haven't seen anything else of him. So I don't want to shit on him as an actor because I haven't seen enough of his other work. Yeah. I mean, if it was Meryl, a Meryl Streep performance, I'd be like, well, I know you're better than this. So Meryl, you suck. Yeah. But I mean, it, sorry, Ryan. Warner Brothers said that they were only going to allow Kubrick to do this movie if he cast one of the top 10 box office stars of 1970. I understand that. This is going to be a very fancy pants movie. We need names. And you're coming off a of Clockwork Orange. Not the most marketable movie. Sure, in the you world. need a fancy pants name. I, I understand that. Give us a star. Fancy. Any star, I, Stanley. Give us a fancy pants star. I get it. <laughs> All right, man. So the number one box office draw at that time is Clint Eastwood. And then number two. For the only time in his career, based solely off the success of Love Story mm-hmm. and his Oscar nomination for that film, okay. was Ryan O'Neill. Okay. He was 
the hot young stud. He was he was the it boy. The other stars on the list were Steve McQueen, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Barbara Streisand, Paul Newman, Charles Bronson, John Wayne, and Marlon Brando. Okay. The only two actors that are of appropriate age and stature and look at that point were O'Neill and Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. Both were Irish, both were young enough for the role, mm-hmm. and both were big enough draws. They were on the list. Sure. But guess who Kubrick asked to do this first? Redford. Robert Redford. I mean, that's who I would go for. I'm a Redford girl. He turned it down. Sure. But holy shit, had Robert Redford done this? Number one, probably still would have tanked his career for a little bit. No, it wouldn't have. Hmm. I don't know. This would not have tanked his career. He did okay for himself because he became the number one bankable movie star after The Sting and The Way We Were. He got to do The Sting instead of this. I mean, we 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 have previously covered The Sting on this show. It's that was quite an enjoyable film. Infinitely better than this movie. This movie's fun. <laughs> Sting is fun. But on the other hand, no matter what, despite all of this, Redford would have had the roguish gleam because he already does. It's not just that. Here's the thing. I got to be a badass. Rob Redford can be a badass and I uh-huh. need to be badass. Back then, he still would have been a pretty boy, but he could have been dirty if he needed to be dirty. Need to flirt with ladies? Check. All he has to do is stand there and he's flirting but, with ladies. Exactly. But, yep, check. I can flirt with ladies. Check. We're good. And then also, connect with a child. Got that. No problem. And also, fight with my stepson, who I also hate. Not worried about it. He could have hit all those beats. I think where there, we would have had a big problem and Redford would never have put up with it. He would, he would have never gotten along with Kubrick. That's why he probably turned it down. I bet you he'd be like, I'm not spending a year of my life in London getting yelled at for a hundred takes. He doesn't know. For a period drama. Sorry. He does not know what Stanley is going to do with him. Now, if this film, this this character, great for Robert Redford. And we saw him with the, what was the film he just did? Old Man with a Gun. Old Man with a Gun. Same vibe. Very similar vibe. This film done by a different director. It's a runaway hit. Same style, same period, different director. This maybe not a runaway hit, but ooh, yes. And also, everybody wants to be with Redford. Everybody. <laughs> everybody wants to be Redford or be with Redford. It's fine. Unfortunately, Ryan O'Neill never made it as a box office draw again. In fact, his career kind of went down the toilet after this. <laughs> I believe he had some substance abuse problems. That didn't help. Nope. From what I recall, he did get sober and has been sober for a long time, but he was struggling for a long time. He, he had some demons and then, you know, he's a very devoted father from what I remember. And then had to deal with all of that, which yep. was really sad. Also, who could have been better? Richard Harris was originally Ooh. in mind with the role being written. He would have been really old. He would have been a bit old for this. In 73? No. Mm. He had just sung MacArthur Park. Come on. He was... He was a little bit older, but he, not much. He would have been in his 40s. You do the right makeup. You can make it work. Well, okay. I haven't seen a picture of Richard Harris in his 40s, so I don't know. I only know Richard Harris either like in his 20s or as Dumbledore. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no middle. Or And then I just go, that's Liam Price's daddy. <laughs> <sighs> well, playing the role of Lady Honoria Linden, Marissa Berenson. Before this, she was in Death in Venice and Cabaret. Okay. After this, Killer Fish, SOB, The Secret Diary of Sigmund Freud, 
lots of European television and movies. Okay. That's where she's from. Color Me Kubrick. That is the John Malkovich vehicle in which he is a Kubrick imposter. Oh, okay. That's and cool. I Am Love. What do we think of Marissa Berenson in this movie? She's there to be a painting. I mean, she's a prop. Yes. That's, she's a prop. She's a painting. She has a very expressive face. Which is which necessary is a, which for the acting important. in this role. Um, I mean, I, I'm mad that she's not given more writing. But despite that, she has a very expressive face and she does use it. So, good for her. If I felt like the rest of the movie was competent around her then I would feel much better about the choice of her not saying very much at all. True. Because then- or she, it, or she had more action. Because then it's very clear that in this story, that's what she is to Barry. Sure. She is just this figurehead and this money that will fund whatever the fuck he wants to do for the rest of his life. Pretty much. So like, that's all she is to him. Yeah. Which she, means she doesn't need to say much. Right. Well, she shouldn't say much. Right. And so I think it works, but because nothing else is working, then it just feels depressing. Yeah, I was just like, well, yeah. they could have given you something to do. But well, I'll agree with that. I, at first I was going to be like, God, there's nothing there. But you're like, no, no, there is a lot there. It's just we never get a chance to actually see her try to do anything with it. She, she doesn't get to do anything, and that's not her fault. Yeah. Despite second billing for the film, she has a grand total of 13 lines of dialogue, yeah. less than 100 words. Yeah, they don't, they don't give her anything to do. And she is an important part of the film. So I wish, I wish if she weren't going to be talking, I wish she was on screen more and or she did more. She was cast with no screen test, just based on look alone. Okay. She knew little about the period other than just general ideas of the era. Okay. But was immediately interested in the opportunity. Okay. Apparently, Kubrick was incredibly shy around her, preferring to give his direction to her with handwritten notes. That seems weird. That's pathetic. Hmm. And, and this isn't the worst thing in the world. It's slightly more amusing than anything. But she was instructed by Kubrick in the production that she should stay out of the sun for as long as possible in the months before filming to try and be as pale as possible on screen. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, um, we're going to put makeup on you, but like, you have to look the whitest you can possibly look. James Marsters and David Boreanaz used to have to do that for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're just like, can't go out on the sun. No sun. Nope. I have to slather on the sunscreen. I can't go outside because I have to be pale. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it pays off. I mean, she looks like a Regency lady of royalty less time in the makeup chair yep then we have patrick mcgee playing the chevalier du Bolibari. okay he did act and he was fun uh, we would know him as mr alexander from a clockwork orange mm -hmm. we already saw him a lot of the people that kubrick worked with for this movie were in other movies of his yeah he was the only one that i was like i know his face why do i know his face and so i had to look. so before this he was in the concrete jungle the young racers dementia 13 Francis Ford Coppola's big movie break, Zulu, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, The Mask of the Red Death, Marat Saad, The Birthday Party from 1968, Cromwell, King Lear, The Trojan Women, A Clockwork Orange, Tales from the Crypt from 1972, Young Winston, Pope Joan, Luther, and 1975's Galileo, and then after this, Rough Cut and Chariots of Fire. Oh, okay, yeah. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, but he does very well with what he has. The Chevalier is good and intriguing and an interesting story. 
Well, and and that's a piece of like where because that's where we got to see like Barry's the hustler. Like he's helping be a hustler, which is fine. Yes. And that was interesting. And that was kind of like his first bit of stepping stone into society, uh-huh. which was interesting. But, you know, again, Ryan's doing nothing in the scene. Chevalier is doing all the work. And it's but it's fine. And the Chevalier is also himself an Irishman, mm-hmm. <laughs> never in society, who made his way in by lying and cheating his way. It's such a great moment that we could have twisted and then Ryan could have completely blossomed. Yep. Like I could excuse him being so ingenuous and naive throughout the first part of the movie if in the second part of the movie you all of a sudden see this total and complete depraved human. Yeah. But he never quite gets there in the second half. If he had just pushed it a little harder in that second part of the movie, it would almost read okay to me. Almost. I'm not saying it would. fix anything but like in the scene where mcgee was dealing cards he started to sweat profusely and could not hold on to the cards and deal effectively Mm -hmm. so kubrick brought in a professional dealer okay that makes sense okay but the dealer's hands were completely smooth and mcgee had a lot of hair it's an older gentleman okay so they shaved mcgee's hands and they matched up the shots and finally, for our main cast, we have Hardy Kruger as Captain Potsdorf. Okay. Now, before this, he did lots of post-war German movies. The one that got away, Hatari, The Flight of the Phoenix from 1965, The Secret of Santa Vittoria, and lots of European movies. After this, he did A Bridge Too Far, The Wild Geese, and Wrong is Right. But he has a really interesting backstory. Okay. He was a teen in Germany during the war and was conscripted into the Hitler Youth and the Army. So his first film credits are actually Nazi propaganda. Oh. But he completely renounced his past publicly after the war. And in one film in which he played a Nazi, like mm-hmm. he constantly talked about it. Because he because he was German, he would honest always get pulled in to be sure. on the German sure. side. But during one scene, he had an SS costume and he wore a giant overcoat because he was so ashamed mm-hmm. of that past, he refused to show it on screen. Mm-hmm. It was it was an interesting thing of a person who definitely hated it. Sure. And talked about it. Hmm. And was a sort of a living example of that throughout his entire film career. Wow. So, what do we think of Herr Kruger in this film as Potsdorf? He's good. Hard ass. Yeah. In a good way. In a way that Barry fucking needed at least one character to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know... He's clearly trying. He is trying, like... but it's for not. It's for not. If you had somebody that was slightly compelling, then at least all these other character actors would get to brilliantly shine. And they don't. Yeah, they don't. And, you know, that's the thing with, like, the favorite. We've got these powerhouse women, but then all these character actors around them get to blossom out of nowhere. I mean... Nicholas Holt is so fucking good in that movie. Holt is amazing. And then you see him in The Great really playing such a similar character just to the, like, just exploded on top of it. It's just crazy. It could have been so much better. This movie could have been so good. Yeah, give it another 20 years. Someone will take a crack at it again and be like, you know, they've done Vanity Fair a billion times. They'll do this one again because it's got a cool story. It's a great story. Yeah, it's just this is not the way to do it. No, no. 
For our pawns, and this is going to be a lot of people that we've maybe mentioned earlier, Stephen Burkoff playing Lord Ludd, the foppish royal member. He was the police sergeant in A Clockwork Orange. Andre Morel playing Lord Gustavus Adolphus Vendover, who introduces Barry to high society. He played Watson in the 1959 Hound of the Baskervilles with Peter Cushing. And he was Colonel Green in Bridge on the River Kwai. Okay. Philip Stone playing Graham, the accountant. You would know him as Grady the bartender at the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. Alex's dad in A Clockwork Orange. He was one of the bad guys at the conference in Thunderball, and he has done tons and tons of other character roles. Leon Vitali playing Lord Bullingdon. He has really only a couple of film roles because he became Stanley Kubrick's longtime assistant and casting guy after this film. There are lots of stories of him working with the actors on Full Metal Jacket, and he mm-hmm. appears as a red cloak in Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Wolf Koller, the Prince of Tübingen, was the main Nazi hench guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Pat Roach, Tool, the soldier in the fistfight with Barry, was a professional wrestler that was the Nazi mechanic in Raiders of the Lost Ark that Indy fights into a plane propeller. <laughs> Having interviewed for this role was David Prowse, who had worked, oh, yeah, who had worked with Stanley Kubrick in A Clockwork Perfect. Orange. Anthony Sharp playing Lord Hallam. He was a minister in A Clockwork Orange and Lord Ambrose in Never Say Never Again. Mm-hmm. We have Katharina Kubrick as Danver. We have Vivian Kubrick, his daughter, as a little girl at the magic show. Mm-hmm. If you're looking carefully as we pan out, there's this little girl sitting there and that is Stanley's daughter. Mm-hmm. And finally, the gentleman sleeping next to O'Neill and the two girls at the orgy is the cinematographer John Alcott. <laughs> okay. Need somebody to fill in for that spot, so let's throw him in there. All right. <sighs> Trivia. Early in the 70s, Kubrick asked the prolific filmmaker Ken Russell where he shot all of his period films. Russell told him, and Kubrick promptly used all of those locations. Okay. Russell would state later, quote, I felt quite chuffed. Okay. While the subtitles in the film translate the German and French dialogue into English, there were no subtitles used in the original print of the film. Okay. That's fine. All those scenes are inconsequential to the plot. True. It's not like anything they say in German or French means anything, and it wouldn't work to do anything for us. Yeah, it doesn't change anything for us, so it doesn't really matter. The Chevalier de Balibari was an Italianization of Balibari, or Barrytown, where the gentleman came from in Ireland. Mm. That's a fun joke. Kubrick's first opening credit in this film of a film by Stanley Kubrick. And the on-screen credit at the end, written for the screen, produced by and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Barf. Barfity barf barf. Ryan O'Neill had a son with Farrah Fawcett that they named Redmond. Oh yeah, they did. Hmm. Okay, well at least that's one nice thing. Cute. Leon Vitali actually vomited during that moment in the final duel. He ate a mixed lunch of the heaviest ingredients available, and when that did not work, he swallowed a raw egg whole. He instantly vomited, and Kubrick, getting the shot, did not make him repeat the take. A rarity for the little tyrant. Interesting. (laughs) And in the final scenes, with Barry having an amputated leg, Kubrick suggested that O'Neill get his leg cut off when the double didn't work. Now, Kubrick was known for having a wicked and dry sense of humor. Always has. True. However, O'Neill wasn't sure how serious he was about that, because he'd had to work for the man for, like, a year and a half. Uh, fair. Because Kubrick is a monster. Yeah. Anyway, O'Neill opted to get his leg bent back to give the illusion of the amputation and film the scenes that way. Yeah, because that's what normal Uh people Uh do. Uh Yep, 
Mm-hmm. <sighs> now, for our 1975 series, we will talk about the Oscar nominations. Okay. We will talk about wins later. Okay. This film did win Oscars, though. Uh, I mean, per- it's a period piece. It's surprising. It was nominated for Best Picture. Okay. Best Director. Okay. Best Adapted Screenplay. Ew. <laughs> Best Cinematography. Ew. Best Art Direction and Set Decoration. Okay. So they filmed on location. But I still have to dress it. Best Costume Design. And best music scoring for song score or adaptation. It's a fantastic score. Mm. I'll give it that nod. Mm. Let's rate this film. Oh, God. For every film, we come up with a rating system. Yes, yes, we do. Quintessential to the film. Musket balls? (laughs) Musket balls. Pistols? Do we go with pistols? It's a dual movie. Dueling pistols. Dueling pistols. I have loaded the pistols. I've loaded the pistols. You can examine them for yourself. Mr. Lindon. How many pistols are you going to give this movie? Pistol whip it. <laughs> One. I mean, I don't blame you, but... Like, oof. I don't actively hate it, but it's not good. Like, it's not slap shot bad. <laughs> it's not... not offensive, but it's not good. At least with, like, the other Kubrick films I saw, like, I could spine something cinematic that felt redeeming about it like with 2001 it was just like i mean you invented so much with what you did and it is so visually striking like this movie is fucking stupid it's boring it's boring as fuck but my god but it's gorgeous as hell so okay so i'll give you that clockwork orange is fascinating and disturbing and and misses the point a little bit but again, like you're doing something visually that is just really interesting. But this film doesn't have any of that. No. There's like, I don't want to say there's nothing redeeming about this film, but other than this story's good. Like the story is good, but you fucked it up. Like you ruined the story. And I know you have decent people in this film and you make them look bad. Yeah. And none of them were nominated for performances. Yeah. And this is the type of film, this type of story and film that is Oscar bait. Even if your lead is somebody that's just not that compelling and is mostly just there to be the face, mm-hmm. there are character actors sure. that could really knock it out of the park here. Yeah. And you didn't even let them have it. Yeah. Because I, I'm going to give it a one and a half. I Ooh. elevate it only slightly because from a framing and composition value it really does draw me in i find it really visually stunning that being said there is so many missed opportunities there are so many chances that you had to really make something like if you had the same energy as Mm -hmm. a clockwork orange with the visuals that you decided to put in this movie Mm -hmm. put malcolm mcdowell in the role as barry Lyndon. my god just anybody with that kind of energy Mm-hmm. And it would work. It could, yeah. You have that capability. That's what's for us immensely frustrating is that he's got the ability to make this absurdity work, but instead he just decided to make a painting. Yep. And as visually gorgeous as it is, it's nearly unwatchable. It sucks. It sucks. Yeah, it does. It does. And that concludes the entirety of ever making you have to watch Stanley Kubrick. Not again. It better not be. <laughs> There's other movies of his. We're not watching them. I refuse. No. (laughs) No. So you know what? Let's take another hard left turn. What? I'm going to get whiplash. (laughs) Still a long movie. Oh, Jesus. Didn't realize it was that long. But it's comedy. Okay. It's 70s comedy. 
It's about politics and music and okay. romance. Okay. And 70s people doing 70s things. Okay. We are seeing 1975's Nashville. I know nothing. I only know very little, except that it is considered one of those movies that if you're a movie person, you should have seen. And I've always wanted to sit down and watch it. Well, that is the shtick of this show. I know, right? So, I'm okay. curious. I think there's some uh, there's some Christopher Guest type ideas that we may get from this. Okay. There's some vibes of like the very original idea of the mockumentary-ish type movie. Okay. I've always been curious. So we're going to get to judge it. And it's going to not be a boring ass movie, hopefully. If, if it is, you're going to be in trouble. And... Listeners will get to me listen to me whine about it. That's true. It is. But before we go, we need to talk about a new movie we've seen. So in new movies, we watched One Night in Miami. A fictional account of one incredible night where icons Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown gathered discussing their roles in the civil rights movement and cultural upheaval of the 60s. All right, Regina King. <laughs> you can't not compare this one to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Specifically because we called that the bar for this year in Oscar movies. Well, well that, but it's because both are adaptations of plays. Not only that, but both plays consist primarily of a group of people talking in a room. Yeah. My biggest complaint is that there was no business and no action with Ma Rainey. And this film had business. <laughs> Every, like, and, and I feel like that has to do with us having a director that is an actor and an amazing actor at that. Like Regina King is phenomenal. She had just won her Oscar last year, actually. And she gave these actors business when they're in that hotel room they're doing stuff they're not just sitting they're not just standing they're they're actively doing things that if you're in a room with a group of people you'd be doing i feel like there was plenty of that in maureen i i felt like there was none but i do agree that this is a much better adaptation of a play and again there's also a level of it's a much more realistic story. It's much more easily adaptable mm -hmm. to film. August Wilson is not a, a playwright whose plays are necessarily that easily adapted to I, screen. I don't. I, I, I think that's bullshit. <laughs> no, I, I don't, because I think they're very different tones well, that, they, the two, that, that the authors are setting. Well, they are, but I think it's a lack of imagination in terms of adaptation. It just is. It just is. But ultimately, this succeeds a lot. In, a, in an adaptation mm -hmm. of a theatrical script where Ma Rainey didn't. Correct. So there are some things that I think are a little wrong. I think that the entry, I don't like the beginning. I felt like it was really clunky. And I thought, I thought it took too long for us to get to like what's actually happening. I'm hesitant on that only because if I've never read the play, sure. I really don't know. I don't disagree, but I just think for a movie, and again, I'm trying to watch this as a movie, just going, uh, this is taking too long for me to get to the point of the action of this film. I mean, there's a level at which you just do it. You have a five minute intro, just like you have a five minute outro. And then you have the bulk of this hour and a half long movie be set in the hotel room. By minute 15, I should have known 
all of my characters and I should know the problem. And I didn't. That's just standard movie writing 101. And I know that's di- this is a different thing, but I didn't. It's all exposition. And there's no real payoff to a lot of that exposition. So I'm like, Okay, but is that because there's an assumed historical context? No, you can't assume that at all. Okay, I'm the lady who know, like I've said all the time on this podcast, I know jack shit about history. In fact, so much so that you made so much fun of me for one particular point. I did not. You made fun. You made made fun fun of of yourself. I did. So hard. I did. Okay, so there are two things about this movie. Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay. There's there's a big fight here. And the only context I had for the fight that takes place in this movie. In Miami. In Miami is an episode of Mad Men. It's season four, episode seven, The Suitcase. It is my favorite episode of Mad Men. It is the one episode where I remember, I distinctly remember my experience of watching that episode where this fight takes place and they talk about it a lot. And I just remember coming out of the episode going, if this show ended with this episode, I would be happy. Well, then we get to the end of the movie and Cassius Clay is Muhammad Ali. I personally did not know that Cassius Clay was Muhammad Ali because I knew Muhammad Ali was Muslim. I knew that. And I'm sure someone had told me at some point, well, that was the name that he chose. Sure. Okay, cool. That makes sense to me. But at no point, because I also don't follow sports at all, had anyone ever connect the dots. Cassius Clay was the given name of Muhammad Ali at any point. So like I'm watching this and I'm just like Cassius Clay. Oh, cool. He's a boxer just like Muhammad Ali. Like, like seriously, you, you compare him to Muhammad Ali. Not knowing it's the same guy. I think that these figures are so culturally relevant to Many people. Sure. <laughs> that that's that's assumed. I think that's why you don't need a lot of context up front. Because it's Cassius Clay before he becomes Muhammad Ali. It's Malcolm X. So, okay. So that one may be more on me. Probably. I'm not the only person who doesn't know their relationship with Malcolm X. No, absolutely not. And and that's that's truly there for sure. I know who Malcolm X was. The only reason I know who Jim Brown was is because our series of action films. So setting that aside, I, I think it does succeed, but I do think it it does require a little bit of background on on who everybody is as an entry point for it, because otherwise, yeah, you're right. It it can throw you pretty quick. Sure. And I, I that's where I think the introduction of the film is where it's sloppy. That's fair. As a film as a whole, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's All a- four of these dudes are knocking it out of the fucking park. Absolutely. They're phenomenal. With Leslie Odom Jr. getting the spotlight, who, I gotta say this, we all know he's incredibly talented. If you aren't familiar with who he is, he played Aaron Burr in the original cast of Hamilton, for which he won the Tony. The most amazing thing is, if you then are reminded, oh yeah, that's the Sam Cooke song, and the one they always mm-hmm. point to is You Send Me. Mm-hmm. If you remember his voice, mm-hmm. Leslie Odom Jr. is Sam Cooke. Oh, he can he can do he can mimic him so well, but not in a imitation way, but just in like he's got that essence. No, he's not doing an impression. He's he is embodying Sam Cooke, and that's what just lights up the screen. Mm-hmm. 
The other three guys are doing amazing work, and they're all really great actors mm-hmm. that you don't get to see do stuff like this a lot. Sure. Including Eli Gorey, who playing Cassius Clay. Who we know as playing Mad Dog Monroe on Riverdale. <laughs> That's that's where we saw him. I could not believe it when I saw the casting. And then I saw him and was like, hot damn, Riverdale. Y'all, y'all got one of the most talented people. He's from clearly. Canada. That's that's how they pulled him. Fair, but he's incredible. But also on Riverdale, he played a boxer. Yep. So totally makes sense. Good for him. He was phenomenal. And then getting to see Aldous Hodge and Kingsley Benadir. Who who are phenomenal. Plus, this this subcast, including Michael Imperioli, yeah. Cash's trainer, Angelo Dundee, mm-hmm. Lawrence Gilliard Jr. from The Wire, who I didn't even recognize as Bundini Brown, mm-hmm. Bo Bridges. Nicolette Coe, who is actually Leslie Odom Jr.'s wife <laughs> in real life. There's all sorts of great acting and great roles. It's a phenomenal cast. It's a great movie. I hope Regina King gets a nomination. I don't know. I don't think she'll snag a win. I I really, I just don't. There's really strong entries from the directing category across the board this year. Sure. But this is definitely a strong entry. Yeah. Um, And it, it got recognized by the Golden Globes, which love not only female, but also woman of color. That's amazing. And then I would not be surprised if Leslie got a nomination as well. Yeah. Um, he's he's the re- really the glue in terms of the cast. So he's really the only performance that I feel warrants a nomination if one is going to come out of this. I don't think any writing from here and I don't think anything, any other technical awards. So uh, I could see an adapted screenplay coming for this. One. No, I could. No. I could. No, Just... I don't see one. <laughs> I think it's a throwaway. I really don't. I think it's a great script. I, I, whatever. But yeah, it's good. It's it's a really enjoyable movie. It's available on Amazon. Go watch it. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.